This sermon was delivered at Grand Avenue Baptist Church, a gospel-centered church in Ames, Iowa. Hear more sermons and learn more about Grand Avenue at gabcames.org. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, which can be found on page 10 of your service guide. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife, Solomon fathered Rehoboam, Rehoboam fathered Abijah, Abijah fathered Asa, Asa fathered Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, Joram fathered Uzziah, Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Ammon, Ammon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel, Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel fathered Abiad, Abiad fathered Eliakim, Eliakim fathered Azor, Azor fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Akim, Akim fathered Eliad, Eliad fathered Eleazar, Eleazar fathered Methan, Methan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Good job, Tamara. (laughs) A lot of names. We'll keep um, that handy as we get into Matthew here in just a moment, uh, you may want to circle some of those names as we talk about the people that are in that list. The first thing I want to do uh, before we get started is uh, thank Esther Walker. There she is. Hold up your hand, Queen Esther. There we go. (laughs) Did a great job with fellowship last night, and she had lots of good help. If you got to come, I know you had fun, ate some good food. If you missed it, we missed you. And uh, hopefully next time you can make it to that fellowship time. And uh, it was really good. Fellowship hall was slap full of people. And uh, yeah. So this morning we will begin a journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And let me get uh, begin by a few brief introductory words about the book. First, the word gospel means good news. It means good news. It's something you proclaim. That's what the gospel is. It is a message to be proclaimed. And Matthew's uh, account of the gospel is the account of Jesus Christ's life telling us 
that he is the son of God, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and many other titles that he holds. And we'll look at a few of them here this morning. Also, Matthew's gospel is it's one of four gospels. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and those are very similar in content. And then John's gospel, they're all four very similar. And, um, and so they are all four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. Uh, they tell us how Jesus came to earth and what he did while he was on the earth and what he said, what he accomplished through his death and resurrection. And that's what we're going to find in Matthew's gospel. That's what you'll find in all four gospels. That's what you'll find through the letters that are in the New Testament. So, uh, one moment. Hey, Josiah, would you turn that fan on up there? It's, it's hot up here. It, that's a nice problem, isn't it? After winter, you get up to preach and you're already hot. <laughs> I mean, that means I can just keep right on going, right? Matthew is the author of the gospel that bears his name. I should keep going or I, I will uh, take a detour here. Don't need me to do that. <laughs> but hardly any scholars dispute that Matthew wrote his gospel. And he wrote the gospel of Matthew some 20 to 30 years after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And so it was written somewhere between 50 and 60 A.D., um, you know, give or take a few years there. And Matthew's account, uh, gospel account of Jesus' life is not intended to be a comprehensive biography. I think sometimes when we look at the gospels, we're thinking, well, we're going to get a biography of Jesus' life. It's not a biography. It is intended to communicate a very intentional details about Jesus' life and death. And it's not even written in chronological order. And so if you expect it to be a, a gospel that's in chronological order, it's not written in chronological order. There are some chronological accounts in there, but the whole gospel is not a chronological account of Jesus' life. Um, Matthew wrote his account of Jesus' life and ministry, like I said, for a very specific purpose. And he wanted to show that Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah that was promised by God. And he wanted to demonstrate that Jesus was, like I said earlier, the son of God, the son of David, the son of Abraham, who fulfills all the Old Testament promises. Now, we just went through Isaiah and we saw a lot of those promises. And so the good thing about going through Isaiah and going right into Matthew, Matthew leans heavy into Isaiah. And that's going to inform us a lot and help us a lot as we look at the Gospel of Matthew. And so Matthew's showing us that Jesus is just a continue is not just what is the continuation of the story that began in Genesis. And that's what he is telling us. Matthew's gospel will also find some very popular passages of scripture about Jesus. We'll find uh, accounts of his uh, life and teaching. Uh, his birth, his temptation in the wilderness, uh, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount is always one that is very uh, uh, familiar to people. The Golden Rule was within, is within that. The Lord's Prayer is teaching on divorce and church discipline. We'll have to see the Great Confession by Peter, and we'll conclude with the Great Commission uh, sometime next year, right? I think next year, or maybe the year after that. It's going to be a long series. 
But that's what the conclusion of the book is. So let me kind of give you the flow of the book. So the first four chapters give us account of the introduction to Jesus' life and ministry. So that's what we're going to find in chapters one through four. And then the last three chapters, 26, 27, and 28, they uh, are about his suffering, death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. And the the bulk of Matthew's gospel in chapters 5 through 25 cover his teaching ministry, uh, or his teaching and his ministry. And so we're going to spend a lot of time right there. And, and so when we see that there's that much attention given to his teaching and his ministry, what we learn about the gospel of Matthew is that it is an excellent gospel to teach followers of Christ how to follow Christ. It's, it's, a, it's a, I don't want to call it a manual for discipleship, but and a lot it because it doesn't lay it out like a manual. We have this idea of manual that's going to be this, this, and this. But the thing about the gospel is that it, it really teaches disciples of Christ how to be a disciple. And that's good. And that's good. So by the time we finish the gospel of Matthew prayerfully, all of us have become more devoted to Christ, more in love with Christ, more in awe of God's plan to save sinners. And so that's a few things I wanted to introduce the book with. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we're going to dig into these verses. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, may you stun us this morning with how you brought salvation to this earth through your Son, and through a line of sinners that when we see their lives, we are, will marvel at your saving grace toward them and marvel at your saving grace toward us because Christ is the Holy Son of God. And we bless his name this morning. Amen. So uh, Stacy and I went to Texas last week and so we need to visit our family. I appreciate Pastor Eric finishing up Isaiah. And uh, it is very, very good exclamation point uh, on the end of that book. I love the way he titled it, The End, because the week before I titled mine, In the End, and then his is the end. So it's pretty cool. But we went to Texas last week. We need to check on our parents and visit them. And when we go down, there's usually a few things we need to do to help them out as they age. And um, while we were down there, Stacy's dad wanted her to help him get his driver's license renewed. And to get them renewed, they had to drive to a town about 20 miles away. And uh, he had to collect, as, by the way, he had let his driver's license expire, okay? So they expired. Uh, he has a tough time seeing. And so I told him, I said, you really shouldn't be driving. <laughs> but he said, I know. I'm going, hmm, I know, but I'm getting my driver's license. Okay, anyway, that's a whole other story. It was quite fun. Well, he collected all of his documents that he needed to to get his license, and he needed a birth certificate and a few other documents to show who he was, right? And so they get to the courthouse. He gave them the documents. The clerk looked at his birth certificate, and she told him that his birth certificate was not certified and therefore not valid, and so he couldn't get his license. Well, listen, my my father-in-law is 87 years old, and he 
he, you know, like anybody that's 87, they tend to say what they think, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I wasn't there for the conversation, but I, I know he let her know that, hey, I've been getting my license with this birth certificate since I was 16 years old. In other words, a long time. And uh, he wanted his license, but wouldn't get it. Didn't have the official uh, notary on there. Didn't have the official stamp for that license. And the state of Texas had changed their laws. And so he couldn't get his license because he didn't have the state seal on it. When we come to Matthew 1 through 17, and what we're getting is the official birth certificate of the Son of God. And we're getting it sealed by God himself. Jewish genealogies worked like an official birth certificate. They were that seal of approval. However, to top it off, it's just not any old genealogy, right? We see a lot of genealogies in the Bible, and they're important. They have their place. But Jesus' genealogy is the creme de la creme. It is the ultimate genealogy. And in the first 17 verses of Matthew, we're getting the official birth certificate of the king of the Jews. That's what we're getting. It is, it is the seal of certification by God Almighty on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it shows us that Jesus is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. And so let's work through these 17 verses. Look in verse 1. We're given three titles of uh, Jesus by Matthew. And he is called the Christ, uh, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And each of these titles carries massive significance when we drill down into them. Now, I don't have the luxury of going too deep into these titles because it takes the whole Bible to unpack all of these things, but we're going to look into them for a little bit. So the first one is Jesus Christ. Now in Christian circles, when we hear Jesus Christ, the word Christ or the title Christ has often become a second name for the Lord Jesus. And uh, it's not his last name, all right? The word Christ means Messiah. Like Christ is the Greek term or equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah, which means he is the anointed one. That's who he is. And to be anointed means to be set apart and empowered by God for an appointed task. And to be anointed is the, it's the seal of God's approval. That's what it is. And we use, we use notary publics to seal things here, right? And so some of you here are notary publics. I know my wife is. And, and so they have people come to them and they put that stamp of the state of Iowa on there. And that makes it official. And so to be anointed means to be notarized by God himself. That's what happens with Jesus. He is the anointed, stamped, sealed, signed, delivered, all the other things that you can put in with that. He is the son of God. He's not just a son of God. He is the son of God. And so that's important in his role as the anointed Messiah sent from God. Now, the Jews believed that the Messiah or the anointed one meant to be anointed king. And they had this idea that the anointed king would come and they would free Israel, all the Jews from their enemies. And he would be a military deliverer. However, Matthew's gospel is going to show us that Jesus was not anointed in that way, I mean, he is, but he was not coming for to or to be a military deliverer. He was coming to lay down his life for sinners. Now, he is going to come back as that kind of deliverer that will bring everything to an end in the end. But in Matthew's gospel, we see the anointed king coming to die for sinners. 
And so he is the anointed king who is coming to defeat the greatest foes, sin and death, right? And he is the anointed priest who will offer sacrifice to remove our sin and guilt. He is the anointed prophet who will tell us the truth about himself and humanity. And so Jesus came as our anointed prophet, priest, and king. And those are the roles that Jesus plays. And we'll see them unpacked as we work through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, <clears throat> because Christ is the anointed sacrifice that would remove our sin and guilt. The second title we see for Jesus is in verse 1, Son of David. And the significance of this title is to show us that Jesus is from the house and line of King David. He was the heir of all of Israel's godly kings. In other words, he is the true king of the Jews, which we, when we get to Jesus' crucifixion, if you remember that uh, sign is nailed above the cross, the king of the Jews. He is the king of the Jews. And God promised King David in 2 second, second Samuel seven sixteen that his line would endure forever. The Lord said, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established. And that's what God told David. And then in Isaiah 11, 1, we saw this uh, last year, uh, then the shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And uh, Jesse was David's father. And so when we see the phrase stump of Jesse, it's referring to King David himself. And he was saying that after him will come one who will be the ultimate king. And then he goes on in Isaiah 11, and he says he will be spilled, uh, filled with the spirit of the Lord. He will have understanding, counsel, strength, wisdom, knowledge, and this king will delight, delight in Yahweh. Now, Matthew shows us that Jesus is the promised heir of the throne of David, and he is the king who will rule eternally on David's throne. And again, Matthew doesn't give us this generic genealogy. He gives us a very specific genealogy that proves Christ is the one who came from the line of David. He wants us to see that. He wants us to see that he is the true king. And the last title we see is Son of Abraham. Now, this is an unusual title for Jesus. The significance of this title shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham way back in the book of Genesis. And so by tracing Jesus' lineage through Abraham, Matthew shows us Jesus' Jewishness and that he is the fulfillment of God's promises made to Abraham. So we need to remember what God told Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land your relatives and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Now that's in Genesis 12. Then we go to Genesis 15, five through six. God told Abraham, took him outside. He said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said, your offspring will be that numerous. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So Matthew's gospel shows us that Jesus is not simply the Messiah for the Jews, but actually he is going to teach us that he is the Messiah for the whole world. It is often said that Matthew's gospel is a Jewish, a Jewish gospel. 
Well, it, it is filled with a lot of Jewish things, but he's show, showing us that he's the, the Messiah or the Savior of the whole world. I mean, we get to the end of the gospel, what do we find? The Great Commission. The nations are to be, uh, are be taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Matthew expects us to remember when he brings Abraham, the, the title son of Abraham, into this, that Abraham was a Gentile. We don't often think of that, but he was not just any Gentile. He was a sinful Gentile. He was a pagan before God called him and covenanted with him. And so when God called Abraham and he believed God, he became the father of all of those who were saved by faith in Christ. That, that's what that's, the significance of that title is. It, it doesn't... Um, uh, they're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus, regardless of, regardless of who they are, where they're from, or what they've done. And let's keep working through Jesus' ancestry. When we look deeper into his ancestry, we notice some th interesting char characters in his genealogy, don't we? He said, they're not all Jews. Huh? They're not all saints. Well, as a matter of fact, none of them are saints, <laughs> right? The list is not all men like most genealogies are. Usually they're just listed by the fathers. But we find many women in this, five women actually, in this list. But they're all sinners. And in verse 2, we find the patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these men had their own sordid stories, if you know anything about them. Abraham struggled with his faith. He was a liar. And that was some of the things he did after he came into relationship with God. Isaac followed in his father's footsteps, didn't he? And then Jacob was the worst of the lot. And he was a deceiver, a liar, and a crook. I mean, until the Lord got his attention, until the Lord got all three of these men's attention, right? They weren't following the Lord. I mean, they struggled, but the Lord used them. And when we consider the genealogy of David onward, we see a list of kings, some of who were good kings and some of who were not. Well, many were not. They were just beyond wicked, quite honestly. But we see David, Hezekiah, and Josiah in this list, and they were great kings, but they committed some spectacular sins. David committed adultery and murder. Uzziah uh, was prideful and thought he could perform the role of a priest and he burned incense in the altar of God and God struck him with leprosy. I mean, he was a good king, but that's what he did. Hezekiah was a proud king. And we learned in Isaiah that he showed off uh, toward the end of his reign as king, he showed off the riches of Judah's treasury to Babylon and that eventually led to their deportation, didn't it? Then we learn also that when he found out what was going to happen, that he cared very little about future generations, did he? He said, well, it's going to go well for me, but sorry for the rest of you guys. And those were the good kings. And among the wicked kings in Jesus' line were Ahaz, and he worshipped pagan gods. He defiled the Lord's altar when he replaced it with a pagan altar. That's what Ahaz did. In the line of He's in the line of Jesus. Manasseh probably the worst of them all, openly promoted worship of Canaanite gods. He murdered innocent people. He used infants as burnt offerings to the pagan god Moloch. Just throw them in the fire. That's what he did. Wow. And these line, this, and Jesus came from this line of kings. Matthew also lists five women in Jesus' genealogy. And it's unusual, like I said earlier, to find women in a genealogical list Lineage is usually traced through the fathers, but Matthew wants us to see the role of women 
the role that women played that led up to Jesus' birth. Tamar is mentioned in verse 3. She was a daughter-in-law of Judah. If you know the story, her husband was Judah's son, and then he died. And then Judah promised Tamar to his younger son when he came of age. But Judah never fulfilled his promise, and so Tamar took things into her own hands, didn't she? And she deceptively played the role of a prostitute with Judah in order to gain advantage over him. And when Judah realized she was pregnant, he became furious thought she had been out sleeping around and, and was actually becoming a, a literal prostitute. So he became furious, and then she revealed that she was pregnant by him. And Judah declared her to be more righteous than him. He marries her, and he has, and she becomes the mother of Perez. Wow. And then in verse five we, 5, we find Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute who helped the Israelite spies when they scouted out Jericho. So what, Judah, what Israel's doing, they're coming out of the wilderness exile. They're coming into the promised land. They get to Jericho. Rahab, the prostitute, helps the spies as they begin to scout out the city. And she protects them. She hears what God is doing. She learns about God. She places her faith in God, protects these spies, sends them on their way. Then when the Lord destroys Jericho, Rahab is protected. And then she's folded into the community of faith. She marries Salmon and gave birth to Boaz. Wow. Boaz was a key figure in David's line. His birth leads to Ruth leads us to Ruth, and the woman who would eventually, he would eventually marry, Ruth was not a Jew, if you know that story. She was a Moabite woman. And so uh, Naomi and her husband and her sons moved to Moab because there was a famine in the land of Judah. So they moved to Moab where there was bread. Uh, her sons meet Moabite women. They marry them. And then Naomi's husband dies. Her sons, her daughter, her sons die. So her son-in-law, her daughter-in-laws are without husbands. She decides she's going to move back to Bethlehem in Judah. She gets ready to move back. Uh, Ruth says, "I'm going to go with you." She covenants with Naomi, "Your God will be my God, and where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. I'm, it, may Lord strike me down if I'm going to be separated from you." She made a covenant with her, and so she moves back to be in covenant with God through Naomi. Well, Boaz was a kinsman redeemer to the family. He meets them, begins to show mercy to them. He sees how industrious uh, Ruth is. Ruth makes a bold move, doesn't she? She goes to the threshing floor one night, and she goes down there, and she covers herself with uh, uh, Boaz's blanket. He's impressed by her industriousness, her ingenuity, and her boldness. And so he goes and does all the things he needs to do in order to take Ruth to be his wife. Well, she gave birth to, um, gosh, I lost my train of thought. She gave birth to Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. So there we go. We see the line continuing. And we're kind of looking at some of those things where kind of, you may frown a little bit. Wow, that's kind of a little off things, not actually doing things exactly right. That's okay. Those things, sin doesn't thwart God's plan, does it? Sometimes we think it does, but it doesn't. And we get to the next woman. 
In verse 6, and her name is Bathsheba, but her name is not mentioned in this verse. She's referred to as who? Uriah's wife. Now, any Jew who heard her referred to as Uriah's wife knew the story that Matthew was referencing. He was pointing to the illicit relationship David had with Bathsheba, and David lusted after her, so he took her to himself and committed adultery with her while Uriah was away at war. She became pregnant by King David, so in order to cover up his sin, he has uh, Uriah sent to the front battle lines where he is killed. And then what happens? The baby that she was pregnant with died. He grieves that. He eventually takes Bathsheba to be his wife. They have a child together, another child together. His name is Solomon, arguably one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel. And so those are four of the women that are, in, that are listed in Jesus' lineage. And the last woman mentioned here is Mary, and we find her in verse 16. And later in chapter 1, we learn that she's not just any woman, but she was a young girl who was a virgin. And she was engaged to be married to Joseph, but they found to be with child. She, was, she had conceived by the Holy Spirit, and there was no sin involved in Jesus' birth, but the situation was enough to raise eyebrows in the community, right? They thought something funny had gone on. Well, something miraculous had gone on, and she was pregnant with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, listen, these women had critical roles in the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we just drilled down into a few of these lives here and a few of the men's lives. And one of the things that we find that is consistent through all the people that are listed here is that they're all sinners. They're all sinners. And they didn't thwart God's plan by being sinners. What do we learn from Jesus' genealogy? Here it is. First, we learn that God keeps His promises. He keeps His promises. He promised through Abraham that His children would be a blessing to the nations. And in Jesus, that promise came true. Jesus is the king in the line of David who came to fulfill the promise of God. And one day, Jesus will return and He will restore all things to uh, what they ought to be. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, as we saw at the end of Isaiah. Jesus will make all things new. Sin, decay, corruption, sickness, and death will be no more. We will be led out of this exile into our glorious home. And that's what Jesus will do. The true Moses, <laughs> the true and better King David, the true and better Abraham. He is the ultimate Messiah. And as God's people, we can take comfort that God keeps His Word. Our King has come in Christ, and we can trust God to do all that He has promised to do. He will never leave us or forsake us, no matter how hard the circumstances we encounter in life. We're never alone. We're never separated from Christ. He walks with us through everything, and our sin does not thwart His plan. He works with us, He forgives us, and He uh, helps us and strengthens us through that. Second, in Jesus' genealogy, we're reminded of the sinfulness of humanity. And Jesus' lineage was filled with sinners from start to finish. And some were worse than others. We can see that. But what we know is that all need a Savior. All sinners need a Savior, except for Jesus. Sin is the, uh, is the one trait that's inherited in this genealogy. He didn't inherit any sin. But we're all born sinners in need of a Savior. And so we're reminded of the sinfulness of humanity as we look at this genealogy. Third, through Jesus' genealogy, we learn that God's promise to save the Gentiles was not an afterthought. 
It's not an afterthought. Now, that may be a foregone conclusion for us. We kind of go, well, I understand that. But it wasn't necessarily so when this gospel was written. They weren't thinking that way. You know, why would God save the Gentiles? We see the list of names, these Gentile women that were listed in Jesus' lineage. We realize that Christ came for all people. Anyone who will turn from their sin and trust Him, no matter how bad they are, no matter how many mistakes they have made, Jesus came to save both men and women, boys and girls, who will admit they are sinners and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what He came to do. Fourth, we should read this list of names and be thankful for what Jesus did. And though He was the Son of God, He humbled Himself, He took on human flesh, and He came to earth uh, in the form of a servant being born of a woman into a long line of sinful humans. And because of what He did, no one is beyond saving. No one is beyond saving. Now let me conclude with this thought. Jesus' genealogy is a legacy of grace not because the people in His lineage were saints, but because of the promise of grace from God. Sin and sinners didn't keep God from fulfilling His promise to save us. Often we may think we're beyond saving because of the sins we've committed. You see, we will think that. I'm just too bad. I'm too far gone. I can't be saved. I've made too many mistakes. They've just piled up. It's just God would never love me. God would never save me. It's kind of like thinking, how would God, the Jews thinking, how would God ever save the Gentiles? See, we think that way too, don't we? We think that way. It's the reason I brought that up because we think, ah, well, we understand God saves the Gentiles. No, you don't. No, I don't. Because sometimes I think, how could God love me after I have sinned? I'm going, what does He even put up with me? Listen, my sin does not keep God from loving me because of what Christ has done. Because of what Christ has done. We may believe this if we didn't grow up in a Christian family or attend church, that our situation is hopeless. I mean, look at the dysfunction in my family line. How in the world would God put up with me? How could God save me? I didn't grow up in a church. There's horrible sins in my family. God would never love me. He would never consider saving me. So friends, the sovereign grace of God does not come from a genealogical, can't say it, genealogical list or lineage or ancestry that's filled with saints or from a holy bloodline. No one is ever saved because they were born into a certain family, had certain parents, or had anything like that in their past, powerful relatives or anything. The sovereign grace of God comes from the heart of Almighty God who sent the Holy Son of God through a long line of wicked sinners. And Jesus showed up at the appointed time to fulfill the promise of God to save those who would come to Him in faith and repentance. Now listen to me. That may be you this morning. You may think you're too far gone, but you're not. You're not. The only thing you bring to your salvation is your sin. You know what? That's good news. Because Jesus died to pay for your sins. If you've yet to trust Him today, come to Him in faith. Secondly, as I close, this is not to say that it is unimportant to have godly families. It is. If you're a parent here, 
It's vital that you practice your faith and pass along a legacy of faith to your children and your children's children. And you may be the only follower of Christ in your family, and that's okay. Let a new legacy of faith begin with you. Live boldly for Christ. Teach your family how to follow Jesus. Remember the saving grace of God as a gift. It doesn't mean your faith will be inherited, but you plant seeds. Grace comes from God, but we plant the seeds of that faith. We teach them God's word. We share the gospel with them. We show them how to follow Christ. And then we pray for God to water that seed, to open that heart, to open blind eyes, to open the ears so they can hear. See, we can't impart grace, but we can show them the way, right? Train up a child in the way they should go and they will not depart from it. We, we have to take hope in that. For those of us who have children that aren't following the Lord, man, that gives me hope. I don't know about you, but it gives me hope. Because I've, I'm going to say too much. <laughs> what am I do? But we do that. That's our role as parents. And we pray for God to save them. Model your faith to your family members. Share the gospel with them and then pray and cry out to the Lord to save them, right? That's what we do. Because, the, hey, listen, here's the good thing. Grace, the legacy of grace is a promise. That's better than a, than a bloodline. That's better than ethnicity. That's better than ancestry. A promise from God is better than anything. That's, that's what we pray for, right? That's what we pray for. May the Lord do that in your family. May you be that kind of parent and model your faith for your family in that way. May we be that kind of church that teaches our children in that way. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.